You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Romans chapter 8, that's where you need to be today. So if you want to grab your Bible and get that out on your lap, that would help you and serve you. So if you'll do that, that would be great. Romans chapter 8. And by the way, I don't know if you know... um, a couple of things about the songs that we sang today. So we sang four songs total, an opening song that like a third of you were here for. <clears throat> Just saying. <laughs> an opening song. And then we sang three more kind of in the set you just kind of worked through. The first song, that opening song, and the third song were homegrown, written by our guys in our worship residency right now. Isn't that crazy? They're doing, they're producing such great content, such rich lyrics Um, great to sing corporately together. Um, So man, there's just so much to praise them for and to thank them for. God has given us some really great guys to lead us in in song. So I'm really thankful for them. Okay, Romans chapter eight. We uh, have just been traveling through Romans chapter eight, just kind of verse by verse, trying to work through it and understand what it is that Paul's saying. And today we are to uh, maybe the high point of Romans chapter eight when we get to verse 28. Um, But before we jump into that verse, let me just take a step back and remind you, what is it that Paul's, Paul's doing in Romans eight? It's called by some the greatest chapter of the greatest book of the Bible, but what is the point of the greatest chapter of the greatest book of the Bible? What is Paul getting at? And in a simple word, Paul's aim and his point is the word assurance. He is trying to convince Christians, in part to Christians, a rock solid confidence that God's care for them, his love for them, his protection of them, his guiding of their life is 100% and irrevocably and forever set. It is unshakable. They're never going to wake up on a day and God's just not gonna love them anymore. They're never going to wake up and on this particular day, God's gonna pound them with a little more wrath of his. It's just never going to happen. And Paul's trying to convince them of that. Not just that they would know that mentally, but they would feel that deep down in their bones. This is Paul's aim. He's trying to to convince them and assure them of God's constant, never-ending, will-never-go-away love of them. That's his aim. That's his point. So if you think about how the chapter you know, starts and ends, you just see it so clearly in the bookends of the chapter. Paul starts in Romans 8.1 by trying to convince us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation left. There's not going to be a day where God just kind of gets tired of you and just you know, land blast you with his wrath. That's not going to happen. Then you get to the end of the chapter, the last verse, where Paul says that he is sure that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor powers, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. So it starts with no condemnation. It ends with no separation. He is trying to say to the followers of Jesus, God is 100% and irrevocably for you. He loves you. He cares for you. There's never going to be a day where that ever changes if you're in in Christ. Now that I think just leads to the natural question of, well, why is Paul so worried about conveying that? Why would he spend the entirety of Romans 8 trying to convince us of that? Why, Why is that? There's so many answers to that question, but here's one of them. One answer to that question is because you and I live in a fallen world who has both great moments in it And it also has gory moments in it. This is one of the reasons Paul has to assure us because life in a fallen world has great moments and gory moments. And it's those gory moments that can so often convince us or tries to convince us that God does no longer care for us. And just think, think just back to the last day. If if we could just bottle the last day's injustices up across the universe, not the last week, not the last month, not the last year, not the last century, just the last day's injustices, abuses, mistreatments, oppression, just from the last day. If we could bottle up all the bad news of the last day, you've got terminal cancer, a spouse saying, I'm divorcing you. If we could bottle up all the losses of the last day, parents losing kiddos, Kids losing parents, losing jobs, losing friends. I mean, the loss is just, at times it seems like they never end in life in a fallen world. If we could bottle up all of those things just in the last day and we could pour just the last days out, it would make the oceans look small. 
That's how deep and wide the gore goes. And here's the thing about life in a fallen world. No one's escaping that. No one's escaping the scars and the gashes of life in a fallen world. No one is. Which is one of the reasons why Paul, in response to that, reminds us of Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I can't imagine in the Bible a more comforting, affirming, and encouraging verse than that right there. That's a remarkable thing that he just said. And we know that for those who love God, all, thi all things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the old British preacher, he said, this statement is more packed with doctrine and comfort. So both doctrine and comfort, it's more packed with those two things, doctrine and comfort, than any other passage in the whole realm of scriptures. And that's what we get a chance to work through today. Romans 8, 28. I'm gonna take it in three parts. Here is part number one. Part number one, what does it mean? When Paul says all things work together for good, what in the world is, is Paul, first of all, is Paul crazy? But if he's not crazy, what does he mean by that? All things work together for good. What in the world does that mean? So before we take the whole, let's take a couple of the parts of it. Um, so there's two parts that I think we need to see if we're gonna piece it together and understand the whole. The first thing is the, word, the phrase, all things. You might just kind of circle that phrase, all things, underline that, highlight that. You need to make sure you see all things whenever you see Romans 8, 20, um, 28. What, what does all things mean? That is a comprehensive term, isn't it? I mean, that is a way for Paul to say every single experience that a human being could ever have in this universe, in this world, all things encompasses all of those. In other words, there is not a, an experience, there's not a moment that you're ever going to live through that all things doesn't cover. It covers the entirety of the human experience. It covers things both pleasurable and painful, both wise and foolish, both wrong and right, both ob obedience and sin in our life, both um, the great of our life and the gore of our life. All things covers it all. So we just need to see, first of all, that is a comprehensive way of saying that. It is, it is lumping together every human experience, pushing it into a category, and Paul calls the category all things. So, so that's the first thing we need to see, all things. Here's the second word that you need to make sure you see, is the word good. That's another one you might just need to highlight, circle, whatever you need to do to make sure you see the word good. Now, this verse really hinges on what that word good means. And if you've got a wrong definition of, of good, if, if, if you don't get that word right, what, what the word good means, if you get that word wrong, you gut the verse. You gut the power and the promise of, of what this verse is. So what is the word good? And by the way, one, one of the, when it comes to that word good, one of the things we just need to, to walk into this verse knowing about ourselves is that it is so easy for us to adopt a, a definition of good that is not God's definition of good. You need to know that about yourself. Like I need to know that about myself. I am so prone to thinking good for me is this, when God is saying, that's not what is ultimately good for you. This is what's really good for you. We're so prone to developing differing definitions. Now, here's the problem with that. Here's some of the nuances with that. Those differing definitions oftentimes show up in seasons of suffering for us. Now, here's the next thing you need to hear. When we have differing definitions of good, so God thinks it's one thing, we think it's another thing, they oftentimes show up in seasons of suffering. And if we have differing definitions of the word good with God, it will oftentimes trouble the trouble of our suffering. So do you see why it's so important to get the word good right? If we get the word good wrong, it's gonna show up in seasons of suffering and it's going to trouble the trouble of our suffering. It's gonna make the suffering that we're enduring harder than it otherwise would be. So we need to make sure we get the definition of good right. So what is good? Let's start with what it isn't. Good to God isn't necessarily the American dream. 
you have a nice house and a white picket fence and your life is happily ever, that's not necessarily the good to God. It's not necessarily long life. It's not temporal comfort. It's not temporal prosperity. It's not the immediate relief of suffering for you. Those are not what God would call ultimate goods, right? So what is good to God? Um, verse 29, I think, sheds some light on that. So you can read verse 29. We're gonna work through 29 and 30 next week. But I think it sheds some light on what the word good is to God. And if I were just trying to distill that word good into a phrase, here would be the phrase I would use to describe that, that definition from God's perspective. That good to God is us getting more of Jesus and conformity to Jesus. So good equals more of Jesus and conformity to Jesus. It's getting more of Jesus and looking more like Jesus. That is good. So in, in God's economy, good is anything that strips us of our false saviors. Good to God is anything in our life that would drive us to Jesus in our need. Now hear that. If anything is driving you to Jesus, there is good in that. That is a good to God. For us to be humbly and open-hearted before Jesus, that is a good. So anything that strips us of our false saviors, anything that would drive us to Jesus, those are good. Anything that would get us more of Jesus and make us look more like Jesus, those are goods to God. Now, let me clarify something that's really important here. This passage is not saying that all things are good. Many things that are gonna happen in your life and in my life are not good. They grieve the heart of God and they should grieve us. So we need to make sure we don't misuse this verse. This is not saying everything is good. Many things are really, really bad. Many things are evil. And one of the things I'm just praying, this is, you know, just a side note for us, but one of the things I'm just praying more and more for our church family is anytime that we see things that are not good, that we could grieve those appropriately that it would do something to our heart when we see injustice and things that are not good. So don't, don't hear Paul say all things are good. That's not what he is saying. What Paul is saying, and we'll pull both of the things together, all things and good. What Paul is saying here is that God is powerful enough and wise enough to take everything in the all things category, every human experience, every possible thing that you could experience on this planet, Paul is saying God will take all of those things. Some are good, some are bad. And God is going to bend those things, twist those things and bring good out of those things. That's what Paul's saying. That God will take the, the, the best things in this world, the most broken things in your life, and God will bend all of those, the best and the broken. He will bend all of that into good for you. He will use all of that to bring about good for you. Good more of Jesus, conformity of Jesus. This is the good there. So this is what Paul is saying. Okay, now with that, what part of what Romans 8, 28 does for us, and this is like when Martin Lloyd-Jones says it is packed with doctrine, this is the, the doctrine side of it. Part of what this does is, is move us and push us into, in, really into some deep theological issues. And in particular, into a big word that we all need to have a working awareness of. And it's the word providence. That's not a word that's in most kind of 21st century vocabularies, but I am just inviting you into this word and saying it should be a word in your vocabulary. You need the word providence in your vocabulary. Now the word providence is much like the word Trinity. You don't, it's, you're not gonna go to the, your concordance and find Trinity in the Bible, and you're not going to go into the concordance and find the word providence in the Bible. Both of those two words are theological words used to describe what we see throughout the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the, the God existing as a triune God is, is there. From Genesis to Revelation, the providence of God is there. So it's a word used to describe what we see about creation and how God interacts with it. So what is it? To answer that question, I'm gonna go back to the Heidelberg Catechism, written about 400 years ago. And I think it does the best job of answering the question that I, I just, I, there's no way I'm gonna say it better than this is saying it. So question 27 of the Heidelberg Catechism asks this. What do you mean by the providence of God? What is that? How do you define that? Answer, providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand, heaven and earth 
and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. Okay, I'm going to read that again. This is what providence means. It doesn't get any better than this definition. Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, you and I. And so God rules, rules them that all the way down into the minutia of life, all the way down into leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, your prosperity or your poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. That's providence. Providence is, is us just acknowledging God is sovereign over everything. And our sovereign God is orchestrating and ordaining and guiding every event all the way down to like the blade of a grass. He's ordaining every single event to accomplish his purposes, namely the exaltation of his glory and our good. That God is orchestrating everything for that end, his glory and the good of his people. This is what God is doing. This is what providence is. It's God orchestrating. It's God moving and shaping and, and guiding everything that happens across this planet down to the blade of grass for his purposes. I love how one of uh, my favorite pastors puts it. He says it this way. Providence means this. The hand of God is at the helm. God's steering us through the storms of life toward home, toward a safe haven. And he takes care to order all the events of our lives now to speed us on our way there. This is what we call providence. And I love this last statement. He says it like this. Providence is God's overruling hand at work everywhere in a fallen world. That's providence. It's God's overruling hand at work everywhere in a fallen world. Okay, now... You know, I've been a reader for a long time. I really like to read. It's like, I totally nerd out with a book. I just, I love reading. And for the last decade and a half, most of the reading I've done has been in the nonfiction category. It's been informational centered, like that sort of reading. And, but over the last three or four years, God has just kind of reopened me up to fiction, to like great stories. And you know, one of the things I've learned as I've read more fiction, I have learned that there are some things that, seeing a truth in story form can do to a human heart that hearing the truth in a propositional statement can never do. Like there are some things, like the propositional statement of like, here's the four words to describe the truth. There's that, the propositional statement. And there are things that will never do to a human heart that a story, a good story can do. It can take that truth, put it in story form and just make it come alive to a human heart. That, that's, the, that's the benefit of story. And one of the things that I am so appreciative of in the Bible is the Bible does not just present propositional truth. There's a large section of the Bible that is narrative, that, that, that puts the propositional truth of the Bible in story form. And when I think about that with Romans 8, 28, I am so glad the Bible gives us Romans 8, 28 in a propositional kind of truth, sort of a statement. I'm so grateful for that. But I'm also really grateful that's not all the Bible gives us. The Bible also gives us Romans 8.28 in story form. Enter the story of Joseph. A few years ago, we worked through the story of Joseph. Um, we spent eight or nine weeks in it. And uh, to, to start that set of sermons off, I said this. If I was a director and I were directing a movie called The Life of Joseph, and I had to create the trailer for the movie, like the, the 60 second promo that's gonna be flashing across your screen, here are the words that I would use for the trailer of the life of Joseph. Here's the words I would use as the teaser to get you into the story. I would say something like this. The story of Joseph is a storied presentation of providence. It puts Romans 8:28 in story form. It's a tale of conflict and character, of evil and envy, of murderous rage and rebellion, of sexual temptation and severe trials. It's a story of man moving from a pit to a prison and then to prominence. 
It's a story about the invisible hand of God guiding the visible affairs of man to God's good purposes. It's a story showing that because of Jesus, the greater Joseph, God's purposes cannot be thwarted by the schemes of Satan, by the plans of man, or by the myth of coincidence. It's a story intended to remind Israel then and the church now that God, our Father, can be trusted even in the dark. That's the story of Joseph. Now, I want to just unpack some of that, and let's just do a quick review of of how does the story of Joseph unfold. If you'll go back all the way to Genesis chapter 37, that's where you find it. You don't have to turn there, but it's in the last 13 chapters of, of Genesis. And in Genesis 37, we meet Joseph when he's about 17 years old. He is favored by his father, but he's hated by his brothers. And to make matters worse, he is having these dreams that, that are portraying to his family that they're all going to be bowing down to him and he's gonna be the one kind of in prominence. So you can just take what is already kind of the bitter rivalry between he and his brothers and it just blows it up. And by the time you get to the end of Genesis 37, um, that dream had all but died for Joseph as he walks into the premeditated murderous plot of his brothers. They conspire to kill him, but then they settle for selling him. So if you know the story, there's some Ishmaelites on their way to Egypt. They end up bringing Joseph out of the pit. They sell him to the Ishmaelites and the Ishmaelites then take him on to Egypt. In Genesis 39, uh, Joseph is purchased by Potiphar. Potiphar is a, uh, is a wealthy man. He's among the elites of kind of the Egyptian society, which is gonna be important later in the story. And Joseph finds favor with Potiphar and he raises up in the ranks of Potiphar's house and he finds himself basically in charge, like second command of all Potiphar's stuff. And this is the point in the story when you first read it where you're like, man, finally the guy catches a break. I mean, it feels like at this point that the the sun's about to break through the dark clouds in Joseph's life. But then you keep reading and it gets worse. Um, He is falsely accused by Miss Potiphar, by Potiphar's wife, and thrown into prison. But he doesn't just land in any prison because Potiphar is a wealthy among the elites of Egypt. He is thrown into the king's prison. And in the king's prison, he meets two unsuspecting people, the the cupbearer of the king and the baker of the king, who were both thrown into prison at the same time. And while in dream meeting these two, or while in prison meeting these, you know, two unsuspecting kind of characters here, they have a dream that's really bothering them. And Joseph interprets the dream for them. And his interpretation ends up being true. The cupbearer is restored kind of to the right hand of Pharaoh and the baker is killed by Pharaoh. So he interprets the dream correctly. When the cupbearer is leaving prison, Joseph is like, please remember me, whatever you do. Just remember I'm here. And years pass. The cupbearer did not, he forgot about Joseph. And then one day in, uh, in Genesis 41, Pharaoh starts having troublesome dreams. And if you remember the dreams, it's, uh, you know, this idea of like seven plump, you know, uh, cows come out of the Nile River and then here comes seven really skinny cows behind him. The skinny cows eat up the plump cows. He's, he is messed up by this dream. And, he's so, and no one in, in uh, Egypt can interpret the dream. And all of a sudden, the cupbearer that Joseph met in the king's prison and Joseph was only in the king's prison because he was at Potiphar's house and falsely accused there to be thrown into the king's prison that, that cupbearer remembered Joseph, remembered a guy who could interpret the dream. So he tells Pharaoh and Pharaoh gets Joseph, brings Joseph out of prison. Joseph is now before the most powerful person on the planet and he interprets the dream for Pharaoh. Now, can you just imagine that? Up to that point in, in Joseph's life, everything that could have gone wrong has gone wrong. And strangely, he is in front of the most powerful person on the planet at that time. That is an ironic providence from God, isn't it? So if you remember how the story goes from there, uh, Pharaoh loves the interpretation. He exalts Joseph to the second command in all of Egypt. And Joseph begins to, to, you know, for the first seven years, he begins to get grain from the people, the leftover grain. He stores it. And now the famine is hit. And now Egypt is spared because of Joseph's interpretation of the, green, his, or the, the dream and his wise actions. That They're spared. They've got food now. Now, as the story broadens, we understand now that it's, this famine is not just affecting Egypt, it's affecting the entire kind of countries around Egypt, all the way back into Joseph's homeland. And finally, his family, Joseph's family, feels the pinch of the famine. And when they do, they've heard that there's food in Egypt. What do you think they do? On they go to Egypt. 
and having, they think they are going to find food. They are totally unsuspected, just no idea that they are about to run right into the brother that they sold into slavery that is now second command in all of Egypt. And then you get to Genesis chapter um, 42. It's when the, the, the moment happens. And can you imagine Joseph is looking uh, you know, across this crowd and there he spots his brothers. He hasn't seen them. And, and probably at that time, you know, it's, it's somewhere around 20 years later at that time. He's in his upper thirties by that, by that point in his life. He was sold into slavery at 17. It's been that long and he sees his brothers. Uh, Genesis 42 says that when he saw him, that he immediately remembered back to the dreams that God had given him when he was 17. And the climatic part in the story is found in, in Genesis 45. It's the moment where you have this interaction and this moment of forgiveness with, with Joseph and his brothers. And now I'm gonna read this little section for you in Genesis 45. And I want you to pay attention to the words used in this section. Okay, this is gonna be on the screen for you. Pay attention to the words. Genesis 45, starting in verse four, says this. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And Joseph said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you, you brothers, you sold into Egypt. It was their real and willful choices. They sinned against God. They sinned against Joseph. They were gonna kill him. They just resorted to selling him into slavery. He's looking at them and he's saying, you sold me into Egypt. Now look at verse five. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. You did it. It was your real and willful choices that moved me to Egypt. You did this thing. Then you get to the second part of verse five. Now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Why, Joseph? For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. Verse seven, same statement. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Verse eight, I have the same thing again. So it was not you who sent me here, but Joseph says it was, but God who did it. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all over all of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Okay, so what do we learn from the story of Joseph? Let me just give you four or three quick things here. What do we learn? Number one, we learn that God is sovereign over our suffering. God is sovereign over our suffering. So let's just process this. Who did what in the story we just read in Genesis 45? Who did what? Okay, so I think on the cuff, I would say, wasn't it Joseph's brothers who sent him to Egypt? I mean, wasn't it their fault? Wasn't it them that did that? Wasn't it their sin that did that? The answer is yes, their sin did that. Their real and willful choice did that. But it's a particular kind of yes. It's a lowercase yes. It's yes in the secondary sense. So on the other side, we could ask this now, who is Joseph saying really sent him to Egypt? In the big, all caps sort of a yes, in the primary sense, who does Joseph say did this? Answer, he is saying that God did this. So yes, he used the willful and real choices of his brothers, but, but they're not the ones that got him to Egypt. The one who got, got Joseph to Egypt is not his brothers, it is God who did it. That's amazing, isn't it? Now here's what we can condense out of that. The story is showing us that nothing, not nothing encompasses all things, both pleasurable and painful. The story is showing us that nothing passes into our lives apart from it passing through the hand of God. Nothing will pass into your life apart from it first passing right through the hand of God. God is sovereign like that over your suffering. This is what the story is showing us. At the end of the day, the suffering of Joseph is you cannot just trace it and make it stop at the sins of other people. You cannot just trace the suffering of, of Joseph back to the schemes of Satan. You have to bring the suffering of Joseph through all of that, through the sins of other people, through the, the, the plots and ploys of Satan. It comes all the way back to that and it lands squarely in the lap of God. God is the one that's doing it. Now, here is why that is so important for us to see that God is over our suffering, that nothing passes into our hand apart from it passing through the hand of God. This is why it's so important. 
What makes suffering sufferable is not the thought that God had nothing to do with it, but the thought that God had everything to do with it and is working through that suffering for his glory and your good. Now that is a massive couple of sentences. I'm gonna read that one more time. What makes suffering sufferable is not the thought that God had nothing to do with it, but the thought that God had everything to do with it and is working through it, that suffering, for his glory and our good. I mean, what what is giving Joseph consolation is not what his brothers did or didn't do. What is giving Joseph comfort is him realizing God is the one doing all this. How did I land in a pit by my brothers? God did it. How was I sold into slavery? God did it. How, how, How am I betrayed, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife? God did it. How was I raised up in second command of all of Egypt? God did it. All of those things, God is behind orchestrating and moving and twisting all of those for God's purposes, for his glory and the good of Joseph. I love how one person says it. He says, pain and loss are bitter providences, but oh, the folly of trying to lighten the ship of suffering by throwing God's governance overboard. And this is what many people try to do. We're suffering. And what we want to tell people is, God's got nothing to do with that suffering. But that's not helping people in the middle of their suffering. It actually hurts them in the middle of their suffering. Listen to this again. Pain and loss are bitter providences. But oh, the folly of trying to lighten the ship of suffering by throwing God's governance, his, his, his providence, his sovereignty overboard, trying to get rid of those things. The very thing the tilting ship needs in the storm is the ballast of God's sovereignty, not the unburdening of this deep and precious truth. God's sovereignty becomes the pillow that the weary saint can lie down on. That's what God's sovereignty becomes. When you know that you have a God who loves you and is orchestrating everything, both the pain and the pleasurable things in your life, when you know that about God, then we can lay our head down at night knowing the God that's doing that is our dad. He loves us. He cares for us. He's with us. He's doing good to us. Now, let me be clear and and clarify one thing. To say that God is sovereign over suffering and evil is different than saying God is the actor of evil. God is not the actor of evil. Okay, let me say that again. To say that God is sovereign over suffering and evil is different than saying that God's the actor of evil. Second part of that, the Bible is clear that people are 100% responsible for their actions. Judas is a great illustration of this. Judas um, was 100% responsible for his betrayal of Jesus. But the Bible also affirms the sovereignty of God over it. Why did that happen? It was so the scriptures might be fulfilled. So God is orchestrating, but Judas is the one doing that. He's the one that, that, that rebelled. He's responsible for his rebellion against God. Okay, so the first thing we see from Joseph is that all of our suffering is under the sovereignty of God, that God is sovereign over all of it. Here's the second thing we learned from the story of Joseph, that God is at work in our suffering for good, that in our suffering, God is doing things. And what he is doing in the middle of those things is working for our good. Now, you see this in, in probably most clearly in Joseph's story in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. This is the summary statement of the story of Joseph. This is at the end of, of, of the story, and uh, Joseph's dad has died. And the brothers now are all fearful that now that the dad's died, Joseph is going to get us all. And Joseph, in response to that, looks at them and says, As for you, this is why I'm not going to get you. Because as for you, you meant evil against me. You did evil against me. You were trying to hurt and harm me. But God took your evil and he meant it for good. You meant it for for bad. God took what you meant for bad and he brought good from it. Let me just condense it by saying it this way. This is what we learned from the story of Joseph. God overrules their intention in the act. The brothers had an intention. God overrules their intention in the act while bringing about his intention through the act. So think about the brothers. They had an intention. Here was their intention. We want to put Joseph away. We want him gone. But God also has an intention. And God took their intention, but he overruled their intention to bring about his intention. God's intention was this. I need Joseph in Egypt. I got to get him 
out of his homeland and I've got to get him down there because I've got stuff I want to do down there with Egypt, namely, or in Egypt. Namely, I'm going to raise Joseph, the second command of all of Egypt. He's going to save everyone. That's what I'm going to do with him. But first, I've got to get him down to Egypt. How am I going to get him down to Egypt? I'm going to, I'm going to take their willful kind of actions, their intentions. I'm going to overrule their intentions and bring about my intentions. That's what I'm going to do. So I'm going to get him down to Egypt through his brother's willful wrong actions. Think about Potiphar's wife. She had an intention. Her intention was to put Joseph away, put him in prison. I don't ever want to see Joseph again. But God overruled her intention in the act while bringing about his intention through her act. What was God's intention? I need Joseph to be in the king's prison. The king's going to then bring his cupbearer in there. He's just going to interpret a dream. Cupbearer's going to remember that later when, when Pharaoh has a dream. And then Joseph is going to stand before Pharaoh one day, interpret that dream for Pharaoh, be second command of all of Egypt, and people are going to get saved and rescued. That's what I'm going to do. Do you see how God's doing that? He's behind the scenes orchestrating. He's overruling their, their sinful desires and their sinful intentions. And he's bringing about his intentions through their sinful intentions. So here's what this means for us. Let me just condense this down and like boil this down for us. Here's what it means for you and I. The providence of God imparts this assurance to every, if you're in Christ in the room, the providence of God imparts this assurance to you. No person, no evil, no tragedy, no sin done by you or against you can block God's plans for you. Is that not mind-blowing? No person, no evil, no tragedy, no sin done by you or against you can block God's plans for you. God is bigger than, than you. God is bigger than evil. God is bigger than tragedy. God is bigger than your sin or sin done against you. God is bigger than your background. God is bigger than everything. There is nothing. Providence is telling us this. There is nothing anyone or anything can do to block God's plans for you. It's impossible. God is 100% irrevocably for taking all things in your life and making them good, accomplishing his purposes, his glory and your good. God is gonna do that. And there's nothing you or anyone else can do about that. Here's the third thing we learned from the story of Joseph, that God can be trusted even in the dark, even in the dark. You know, when I think about the story of Joseph, it is it's hard for me to put myself in the shoes because you're reading kind of the Cliff Notes version of the story, right? But think about what is happening. Joseph is 17 years old and he is sold as a slave. He is 30 before he, he raises the second command in all of Egypt. So there is a 13 year window when if I'm Joseph, it would have felt like my life was an absolute waste. My life has fallen apart. God, where are you? Do you remember these dreams, God? Do you remember these dreams that people about? Where in the world are those dreams and where in the world are you? God, this is not going right. There is no way I could be here and you care for me. There's no way. That's what I would be feeling if I were Joseph. But this story shows us God can be trusted in the dark. When you don't know what God's doing, you can still trust God's doing something good for you. So when I process the story, here's one of the ways that I personally process it. The end of the story shows us where God is during the story, right? The end of the story shows us, do you know where God was when Joseph was rotting away in prison? God was right there in that prison, orchestrating and ordaining every single event in Joseph's life to do good to Joseph. That's where God was. Now think about your life and my life for a moment, because here's one of the problems that we all have is most of our suffering is not going to have clean bows on it like Joseph's was. Joseph gets to the end of his life and he looks back and he's like, man, I can connect the dots. God sold, or you know, my brother sold me into slavery here. There's a reason because God was doing this. Um, Potiphar's wife, she falsely accuses me here. And there's a reason because God was doing this. I'm in prison all these years. And there's a reason because God was doing, most of our lives don't look like that, do they? Most of our life, for, for most of us in this temporal life, you will not see the end of your story to be able to like connect all of those dots for you to be convinced now that God, of where God was during your story. But I just wanna encourage you with this. There will be a day if you're in Christ when you are in front of Jesus. And just as clear as it was for Joseph, it will be that clear for you. Both your painful things and your pleasurable things. It will be perfectly clear 
God was doing this and he was doing that. And he was getting that done. And he was doing this thing. He was orchestrating the affairs of this world for his good purposes, his glory, my good. And I can see it so clearly now. And, and it's that picture at the end, what, what we're gonna see of God, what, what we know at the end of that story, what we're gonna know about our story then, that needs to convince us of what God is doing now, where God is during our story now. The story of Joseph is showing us that God can be trusted even when you can't trace his hand. Even when you don't know exactly what he's doing, you know his heart for you. You know he is 100% irrevocably for you, that he cares for you, that he's guiding and orchestrating every moment for his glory and your joy. Points two and three are gonna come fast. Point one is, what does it mean? Point two, what does it produce? If we're really believing and living in Romans 8, 28, what does it produce? Short answer is comfort and assurance. That's the short answer. Longer answer is Romans 8, 28 produces heroic and fearless Christians. Can you imagine what your life would look like if you really deep down in your bones believed every single thing that passes into your life passes from the hand of God? right through the hand of God and that God is bending and twisting everything that comes into your life for your good. Can you imagine what it would feel like to really believe that? In the safe harbor of Romans 8, 28, the storms of life can break against us, but the truth is they can never break us. And when we're living in that awareness, it produces fearlessness. It produces courage heroic Christians. Jonathan Edwards was a pastor in uh, New England, kind of the northeastern part of the U.S. several centuries ago. And uh, before he was the pastor of the church, his father-in-law was the pastor of the church. And his father-in-law had an unbiblical practice of opening up communion to both believers and believers. When the Bible is really clear that communion should be a believer thing. It should be for those who are in Christ. And so Jonathan Edwards, when he becomes pastor there, he sees that and he begins to open up the Bible for his people and lead them toward a more biblical place. And his people turn on him. I mean, they just come after him and they end up firing him. And one person that was just commenting on watching this event unfold says this about it. That faithful witness, that's what he called Jonathan Edwards in this moment. That faithful witness received the shock of being fired. He received the shock unshaken. I never saw the least symptoms of displeasure in his countenance the whole week, but he appeared like a man of God whose happiness was out of the reach of his enemies. And his treasure was not only a future, but a present good overbalancing all imaginable ills of life. And even to the astonishment of many who would not rest, who would not be at rest without his dismissal. That's what Romans 8.28 produces. It produces a hope and a joy in the heart of a Christian that is beyond the reach of Satan, that is beyond the reach of enemies, that is beyond the reach of anything. That's what Romans 8 is meant to produce. Um, I, I was listening to a guy, he was at a retreat, I was out here recently, and he was preaching on suffering. And one of the things he said is he said, do you know how suffering oftentimes will mock you when you're in the middle of it? Like when you're suffering, there are moments when you've got a voice going in your mind that says something like this. There's no way you could be going through that and God love you. There's no way you could be going through that and God like you even. There's no way you could be going through that and God care for you. See, look at your suffering. It is showing you that God has abandoned you, that God has left you. You know those voices in the middle of suffering? And he said, have you ever thought about in the middle of, of suffering when those voices are just kind of ramped up in your life? Have you ever thought about like turning that voice around and like mocking your suffering? I mean, have you ever thought about talking back to your suffering? Have you ever thought about doing that? About, about mocking your suffering. And then he went on to say, the next time that suffering comes to the door of your life, why don't you look at that suffering and why don't you tell that suffering this? Hello, my slave, produce for me the joy of my master. Why don't you do that the next time suffering comes into your life, walks into your life? Hello, my slave, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Produce for me the joy of my master. That's what Romans 8 gives us the ability to say. Point three and we're done. Who is this for? The promise of Romans 8, 28 is not for everyone. 
Paul draws the boundaries around the promise of Romans 8, 28. And here are the boundaries that define who gets it and who doesn't get it. Those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now, both of those two statements are the same. They're both saying the exact same thing. They're saying it's those who are in Christ, that's who gets the promise. But if you're not in Christ, you do not get the promise. But if you're in Christ, you do get it. But I want you to notice, I want you just to circle for those who love God. I just couldn't get away from that this week. And I think it's a word that our culture in particular really needs to hear. That is how Paul defines a Christian, those who love God. So if you're asking the question, am I in this promise or am I on the outside of this promise? If the boundaries are those who love God and are called according to his purpose, the boundaries, you have to be in Christ. Am I in on the promise or am I on the outside? And when you're asking that question, am I in, do I get there? Is this promise for me or not? Don't ask the question, am I a Christian? Who in our culture isn't? Don't ask that question. Ask this question, do I love God? Like, do I have a genuine love of Jesus in me? Like, do I really deep down in my bones love God? See, you can have a profession of faith without ever possessing faith. You can make a profession without ever having a heart that loves Jesus. And what a Christian is, is a person whose heart has come open to Jesus and actually loves him. That's what a Christian is. So ask yourself the question, do I love Jesus? And if you're this morning saying, you know what, I don't love Jesus. That's been the mark of my life. The, the consistent testimony of my life is there is not a deep and abiding love of Jesus there. If that's you this morning, then this passage has got an invitation just wrapped right in the middle of it. It's inviting you. Well, why don't you come and get that? Why don't you come and get Jesus? And why don't you come and get this promise? If you want the promise, here's what you need to do. You need to turn away from the sin that disqualifies you. And you need to turn away from all of your perceived good that you think qualifies you for the promise. So you turn away from everything that disqualifies you and you turn away from those things that you think qualify you and you throw your life upon Jesus. It's life, death, and resurrection. And do you know what you can have this morning? Jesus. Do you know what you can have this morning? This promise from Jesus. God would stand just ready and wide open for you to come and experience that, for your life to be in the safe harbor of Romans 8, 28. It's interesting how Paul, the first phrase Paul uses it in Romans 8, 28, and we know. It's kind of interesting. I mean, I, I read that and I'm like, no, maybe we don't know, Paul. I mean, he's just, it's almost like he's assuming that we know it, right? I mean, he's like assuming that we have this common knowledge of the raw facts of Romans 8, 28. And I'm like, Paul, I don't know it so often. So will you please remind me of that? But isn't it one thing to know the raw facts and then a whole nother to live your life in the harbor of it? Like for, for, that, for those facts to be deeply embedded into your bones, we all need the help of God to get us there. And that's where God wants to take us. I'm gonna end with this quote. One of my favorite pastors says it like this. Romans 8, 28 isn't easy for us to believe. It's not easy for me to believe, I'll tell you that. He says, what happens in our minds is we move back and forth along a continuum. Just see the continuum here. Between confidence on this side and fear on this side. And at one end, this end is all things work together for good. That's what produces the confidence. On the other end is nothing works together for good. That's what produces the fear. And in between is, right here, is some, some things work together for good. And our thoughts and feelings move back and forth on that continuum moment by moment, often hovering somewhere around the middle that some things work for good. So, so here's what it produces in us. We're not terrified, he says, but neither are we fearless. We're just kind of in the middle. Sometimes we're afraid and sometimes we're kind of courageous. And he goes on. And I'll just leave you with this today. God wants to change that in you today. God doesn't want you to stay in the middle any, anymore. God wants to take you and he wants to take me all the way into confidence. Amen? And may we be people who will allow him to take us there. Let's pray. I don't want to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you the things that would be helpful this morning.
So how does God take us all the way to confidence? I think that's a question many of us are asking because many of us need that. Because the storm waves of life right now just seem to be breaking into our life with a relentless pace. I mean, for many of us in the room, we limped in this morning just hanging on by a thread. So how in the world does God take us and move us there? I mean, many of us came in this morning and if we're just really honest with ourselves and with God and with others, we're looking at God right now and we're, we're, we've got charges that we're bringing. God, how in the world could I be going through this and you love me? God, how in the world could these things be happening in my life and you care for me? God, how in the world is that even possible for you to be who you say you are and this to be happening in my life? And if that's you this morning, I, I want you to imagine something with me. Can you just imagine yourself before God the Father one day? And I want you to imagine you bringing your charges against God. God, how, how can I be going through this and you love me? How am I not to feel like you have abandoned me if I'm going through these things? God, how am I supposed to, to feel like you care about me? God, how? And just with tears streaming down the eyes of God the Father's face, he looks over and he says, God the Son, Jesus, will you, will you please come over? And, and, and then he looks at God the Son, he looks at his beloved Son, Jesus, and he says, Jesus, will you show, will you show them your hands? And it's in that moment that you see the nail-pierced hands of Jesus. And God the Father, just with tears streaming, looks at you and says, does that look like the hands of a God who doesn't care for you? Does that look like the hands of a God who have abandoned you? Does that look like the hands of a God who can't take the mess of my beloved son, Jesus' life? and turn it for good? Does that look like the hands of a God who don't care for you, particularly you? No, that's the hands of a God who, who would be willing to give us his beloved son and with him, how would he not also graciously give you all things? So, oh God, this morning, would you help us? God, would you help us believe in your tender care for us? Your gracious guidance of our lives as we sit in the dark today? God, will you show us the hands of Jesus that would convince us that those hands care for us? God, will you move us to a rock-solid confidence that not some things, but all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Oh God, would you help us? It's in your good name that we ask this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.